Hello, and welcome to the show. Uh, as we often do on Mondays, we will tell you some things that will perhaps mildly frighten you. We'll cheer, we're going to cheer you up right at the end. So just right when you're just curled into the fetal position, we're going to give you something amusing to think about. That thing will be French dressing. Uh, but before that, we do have some uh, mildly... You know, really, the first two-thirds of this show are going to basically ask the question, which season of 24 are we in? Because, you know, if you watched 24, it would be definitely one of the Charles Logan seasons. we got a president who minimizes uh, the activities of Russian espionage and wants to hold on to power long past the time when he should relinquish it. And we are going to talk about those two things. In the second segment, we'll talk about the fact that, yes, according to the New York Times, President Trump uh, and some of his um, lawyers are talking with White House staffers about, well, I mean, is it so crazy to impose martial law? I mean, would it be so bad (laughs) if we just used the military to hold on to power? Would people really get that upset? Just spitballing the idea. Before that, though, uh, we've been hacked. Uh, And when I say we, I mean uh, a vast intelligence operation, the size and scope of which would have few rivals in history. But we're so busy worrying about other stuff that perhaps we haven't really thought or talked very much about this. So let's get going with that. Uh, And joining us today is Josephine Wolf, Assistant Professor of Cybersecurity Policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. She's the author of You'll See This Message When It Is Too Late, great title, The Legal and Economic Aftermath of Cybersecurity Breaches. Josephine Wolf, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So somebody, we, we won't point a finger quite yet, but somebody had the smart idea, as I understand it, Josephine Wolf, that yes, you could hack 18,000 different business and government ent- entities in the United States one by one, ranging from Los Alamos nuclear facility to most Fortune 500 companies, or you could hack one company that deals with 18,000 entities that has software which requires updates, uh, which would allow you to get them to voluntarily upload your hack uh, so that you would have a backdoor into what they were doing. So is that what happened? Did, did, we, did our adversary, who shall at this point remain nameless, get us to kind of hack ourselves? That's one way of thinking about it. Certainly there was a lot of work on their part too. This is what we would call a supply chain attack, right? They go after a downstream provider of services. And in this case, it's the SolarWinds Orion products, which are actually somewhat ironically a security monitoring tool. Mm -hmm. So the software that was being updated was a tool to sort of monitor your networks, make sure you were aware of any suspicious activity that was going on to help you figure out sort of if there were threats that were targeting you. And like all software that we use, it has to be updated periodically for various reasons, some security related, some otherwise. And what happened here was that some of those updates got compromised. So the sort of actual update that SolarWinds meant to be sending out was manipulated and posted with this malware included on it so that when all of these different customers got the update from the company, they went ahead, they downloaded the same way all the security people are always telling you to, please download the updates, please download the updates. And in this case, that actually was the initial cause of the breach for many of these places. 
that was the initial cause of the breach. You mentioned a lot of work. I mean, as I understand it, after the the voluntarily, the voluntarily and ignorantly uh, uh, uploading this uh, malware and creating kind of a backdoor, then you've got a situation where the hackers do more labor intensive work, right? Work that involves sitting down at a keyboard and using that backdoor to put even more stuff uh, into these systems. So tell us about that. Right. Well, we're still finding out sort of about the full extent of that. We have some ideas of what happened, right? We know that, for instance, there was monitoring of email accounts in the Department of Commerce happening within the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, a group that works on internet policy. So we've got some ideas so far of kind of what they were going after. And as you say, right, there's this first toehold, which comes from the compromised update. And then depending on what system you're in and what you most want to get access to, you're probably going to use that to install more malware to monitor certain accounts or certain information that you're interested in. We know what some of that is. As I say, we know a little bit about what they were doing in the Department of Commerce. We know that in the security firm FireEye, they were stealing some of the tools that FireEye uses to run penetration tests and help secure its clients. Um, we know that they were able to compromise some of the Microsoft services as well and use those to access Microsoft customers. So we're starting to get some sense of sort of how vast this was and the range of things that were going on. But I would say we're still probably at the very beginning of trying to unravel all of that. Right. So in the, as I understand it, too, part of the problem may be that the hackers have installed kind of the digital equivalent of sleeper cells that could wake up. Uh, at some point in the future uh, and start doing stuff that they are not currently doing, that there are maybe kind of time bombs sitting in some of these uh, entities that were hacked? Yeah, that's that's a very good way of thinking about it because when you have sort of a, a more typical or a more low-key data breach, often it's a little bit easier to trace, right? If I steal your password and I use that to get into a computer system and do some bad stuff, then as soon as we find out about that, we kind of go back and say, okay, what did the person using your credentials do? And we can try and sort of clean that up and isolate it and get the system back up and running pretty securely afterwards. And in this case, because the access was not like one person's credentials were compromised or one, one small thing that went wrong that we can isolate, instead, I think the cleanup effort here, just because there are so many organizations and so, so much access that the adversaries had, is going to take a really long time. And we could still be seeing these kinds of compromises come up for years into the future. So um, one of the more, you know, operative theories, I mean, if, if not settled wisdom, something close to it, is that the hackers in question are from SVR. It's one of the Russian intelligence agencies. It's kind of the, the, um, the, the heir to the old KGB, the people who are running Philip and Elizabeth on the Americans. Um, how, how certain or uncertain are we about who hacked us? Um, the intelligence that we've heard so far does seem to point pretty clearly to SVR. Of course, it's always possible that could shift, but uh, many people at least seem to be fairly confident of that at this point. And it certainly makes sense with sort of what we know to be their interests and their motivations in terms of being a civilian intelligence agency um, running much more kind of passive espionage operations rather than active offensive cyber operations, which we associate more with the GRU group from Russia. So, I mean, that also suggests that 
Although they, you know, this this hack went into a lot of, if not all, Fortune 500 companies and lots of other, you know, private entities like that. They're not that interested in my 401k, probably, right? They're interested. They they want United States intelligence secrets based on what you've seen so far. Yeah, I think there's certainly an interest in intelligence secrets. There's also clearly a lot of interest in stuff happening in the private sector. Um, but I think we're we're still not sure probably exactly how focused that is or whether that's mostly about trying to use those private sector victims as a conduit to access other government victims, which you could also imagine being a, a piece of this. Right. Well, we've seen kind of that happen. It's happening right now in, in a different context uh, where China appears to have access to a lot of non-classified data. But it's like, you know, uh, sort of expense report kind of stuff. Who stays in Starwood hotels and Anthem stuff about health insurance and just being able to layer that one thing on top of the other on top of the other. They're starting to figure out who the intelligence assets uh, are in China uh, that the U.S. has. So it, it is you could almost say there's no such thing as innocuous data if you combine an awful lot of it. Um, Josephine, I did want to ask, like this started in March. It's December now. I mean, how how is it possible that we didn't know about this until pretty recently? It's a great question. Um, and I think there are two ways of looking at that. One is to say this is unbelievably terrible and embarrassing and dangerous that we had malicious code on so many systems across the government, across private industry, and we didn't know about it. And I think the short answer to why didn't we know about it is because this was really, really sophisticated malware. This was malware that was embedded in a legitimate update that came from the actual company putting it out. It was done in such a way that that company was not aware of it at the time or for months afterwards. And we think the only reason we finally learn about it is because FireEye starts investigating its breach and is able to trace it back to this update. Um, so I think the other way of thinking about this is, thank God we found out about it this soon. Right. Um, even though it's been a very long time and probably a lot of damage has been done, you could imagine something like this lasting years and years and years before anybody figured out what was going on. Right. You could almost say, thank God they picked FireEye as one of their tyler. Their yeah, I think that's actually true, that they get a little bit sort of overconfident in who they think they can target and end up targeting a victim that is really well equipped to find out that they've been breached, to investigate that breach and to shine light on what's happened. But Josephine Wolf, that raises the question about whether the U.S. government is well equipped to find out similar things. Let's hear uh, Chris Krebs, former director uh, of the somewhat redundantly named Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. That's three uses of the word security. Uh, he's talking to Jake Tapper uh, on State of the Union uh, about this whole question of whether the federal government is as adept and well prepared as, say, FireEye. The federal civilian agencies, the 101 civilian, uh, civilian agencies, are not really optimized for defense right now. And what that means is there's a lot of old, antiquated, legacy IT systems that are hard to defend. Plus, the authorities are not in place for teams like CISA to really get out there and aggressively root out uh, adversaries. Now, there is a provision in the National Defense Authorization Act, that's the annual defense bill that's sitting on the president's desk waiting for his signature, that would give CISA, my old agency, the authorities to go out and really aggressively hunt and look for these adversaries. And that's what we're going to have to do to get certainty into the other side of this, is really deep diving 
into these agency systems looking for the Russians and going hand-to-hand combat almost with them and getting them out of those systems. So uh, Joseph, Josephine Wolf, that's Christopher Krebs, who, of course, got fired from his job for doing it. Um, but, you know, he's making an interesting point, which I've heard elsewhere, too, which is that the U.S. is a little bit better or maybe a lot better on the cyber front at being a hammer than it is at being a shield. In other words, we we might know how to go after, say, uh, some of Iran's secrets or or maybe go after China's. But maybe in the way that he's talking about, we haven't really played defense very well. Is that fair? Yeah, I would actually say going a little bit further even, there's been a real shift in the past few years on the part of the U.S. government to basically saying that their approach to defense is going to be offense. And there was a shift in the sort of strategy towards what's sometimes called defend forward, um, in which the the whole point was going to be that the United States was going to be in our adversaries' networks and able to sort of respond and retaliate and use that to deter adversaries from infiltrating our own networks. Um, And it was, you know, a controversial strategy, I think, when it was first put forward. There's been a sense that it's been successful in some things, like trying to help protect elections since 2016. But there's also, I think, a way in which it has really led to a lot of oversight around kind of the defense defense as opposed to the offensive defense. And and I think that's sort of what Krebs is getting at here. And I would agree with him that one of the things you see when you look at the SolarWinds compromise is that people weren't paying attention. People weren't paying attention all across many different agencies and departments in the government and did not feel a sort of strong sense of responsibility or a lot of incentive to focus on security. Is there more than just an intuitive connection between this hack and the fact that, you know, we all had our breaths held uh, really from starting around March and going through November about a possible outside hack of our election system. And at the end of it, you know, God knows, as we will be mentioning in the second segment, our election segment has been audited and scrutinized very carefully. And there was sort of a sigh of relief. Wow, the Russians didn't get in here and mess with our election system. Is it possible that we were so worried about that, that this happened, or would this have just happened anyway? It's a hard question to answer. I think it's certainly true that, you know, there are finite resources in the government, especially for thinking about civilian cybersecurity and monitoring various types of threats. And probably they were rightfully very focused on the election this year. And that may in turn have meant that there were fewer resources or fewer people who were able to focus on some of these other types of threats. I do think that some of this type of you know, sort of very sophisticated supply chain based espionage would be happening or at least would be being attempted regardless. But certainly there was a sense and, and I was you know somebody who had the sense as well a few weeks ago of we made it through the sort of biggest cybersecurity test of 2020 relatively unscathed. And to then realize that all that time we had actually been sort of experiencing one of the most sophisticated cyber espionage campaigns ever was was pretty disheartening. So it's usually a mistake to fight the last war. We clearly, as Krebs is suggesting, as you are suggesting, need to get on our game in terms of defense. But I assume that that defense needs to be thought about in a much broader sense than just how do we stop the next Russian hack. So what do we do in a way that lay people can understand to to make ourselves better at keeping this stuff out? 
So I think one of the things that this particular incident makes really clear is we need to be taking much, much more seriously the question of who are all of the different vendors and suppliers that each of us relies on for our software and our hardware and how do we kind of in a manageable, realistic way try to vet their security and make sure that these compromises coming in through the supply chain can't spread as rapidly as they did in this case. And I think that could mean a bunch of different things. One thing it almost certainly means is trying to reduce the number of vendors and third-party suppliers that we rely on in the federal government, trying to get that down to a number where we feel we can effectively audit their security practices and be confident in what they're doing. Another thing it means is probably paying a lot more attention throughout the procurement process to issues like not just sort of what's the price for this piece of software I'm buying, but also do I understand who's been writing it and how it's being protected and what kinds of safeguards are in place. So I think we're hopefully going to see a lot more attention to that moving forward, as well as uh, a lot sort of more significant penalties and incentives for government agencies to actually respond to the vulnerabilities that are brought up in audits that are brought to their attention around their information security, because otherwise we can keep sort of having these audits and saying this agency has not met these standards, this, this department is not secure. But if they don't actually act on that, then it doesn't really matter. Right. So and some other suggestions that have come forward, Alex Stamos from the Stanford Internet Observatory has talked a lot about. We need more transparency. We need kind of the hack, the cybersecurity equivalent of the NTSB. When we have one of these things, uh, it can be investigated to death in a way that is shared with everybody. Maybe hold companies harmless from litigation if they come forward and say we've been hacked. Um, but one last question for you. We've been talking to Josephine Wolf, uh, Assistant Professor of Cybersecurity uh, Policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and the author of You'll See This Message When It Is Too Late, The Legal and Economic Aftermath of Cybersecurity Breaches. So the truth is, I don't know anything about any of this stuff except what I've learned about it through popular culture. And so, but one of the things that I know from Battlestar Galactica is that you can be kind of over-networked. You can be not air-gapped enough. You know, one reason that they didn't get into the super class classified stuff is that stuff is air-gapped, you know, and I'm wondering if, and this is a, like a hard thing, I think, to ask you to pronounce on, but like, are we just, you know, the fact that solar wind could hit unintentionally 18,000 uh, private and government targets, uh, you know, and constantly updating the, the solar wind software, does that mean, uh, well, I'll just say that, are, are, do we need to be a little bit less networked somehow? I think we certainly need to be careful about what kinds of information are networked and what pieces of our computer systems are online. And I don't think that means that sort of we're going to take the government agencies offline. I don't think that would be a productive direction to go in. But I do think it makes sense to say sort of are there certain resources, certain kinds of data that we shouldn't be keeping connected. This is sometimes called network segmentation, where you divide up a network and you say, okay, this piece needs to be super secure. This needs to be air gapped, or it needs to be sort of behind some extra protections. And I do think that will be sort of a part of recovering from this and thinking about how we move forward. All right. Well, you've been a terrific guest and a terrific help. Thank you so much for sharing time with us today. Thank you for having me. All right. We're going to take a break. Now, you probably know that the president has said that he doesn't really think it's, it might not, might be, Russia might be that 400 pound guy sitting in his bedroom somewhere that he used to talk about. And he's also been thinking, you know, 
I don't know, do I really have to leave? So we'll talk to a guy who saw this coming. In fact, he saw it coming on our show quite a few months ago. I'm just an average man with an average life. I work from nine to five. Hey, hell, I pay the price. I want to be left alone in my average home. But why do I always feel like I'm in the twilight zone and So if you're listening live, you just heard the bro. <laughs> it's just strange to hear Alec Baldwin say my name. <laughs> There's just something it just doesn't fit my life somehow. But anyway, it's very exciting. He's very nice to do that, too. All right. Uh, so back in June, we brought on the show a guy named Lawrence Douglas, uh, who is the James J. Grossfield, uh, Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College. His book published in May, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. <laughs> Boy, I hope you pre-ordered that book because it turns out uh, it's the manual you needed to get through the fall. It predicted the exact outcome of the 2020 election. Uh, he's back with us now. Uh, just, you know, we want to kind of take the temperature of the situation and specifically uh, about some news that broke over the weekend. Lawrence Douglas, welcome back to our show. Pleasure to be with you again, Colin. Right. So, um, you know, you're you and Lawrence Wright, you know, you guys, you just sort of you guys see around corners or something. Um, so I, I wanted to ask specifically and then we can get into the general. But, you know, the, there was a story that broke in The New York Times over the weekend that suggested that some of Trump's more rabid uh, legal supporters and, and people like that, the people who've been kind of orchestrating the attempt to discredit the election, uh, met in the White House with uh, President Trump, uh, some of his more conventional staff. Michael Flynn was apparently uh, invited because uh, he had been on uh, some conservative show talking about, well, what about martial law, you know, and and. Apparently, somebody said, well, you know, let's get Michael in here to talk about that whole idea. So they had a conversation that would have just terrified the crap out of everybody, you know, two or three years ago. I feel like we're so inured to this you know, that the president could actually entertain, even hypothetically, maybe uh, something like martial law, something like having Sidney Powell become a special counsel and run around using the military to seize voting machines and stuff like that. And and, and it's just sort of like another day at the bank. Um, but But what was your reaction to all that? Well, I suppose it's it's not dissimilar to yours, Colin. I mean, I guess I was kind of shocked and unsurprised. I mean, shocked in as much as it is kind of astonishing to imagine the uh, president listening to this uh, disgraced and convicted and ultimately pardoned former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, floating this nutty idea of declaring martial law and then having the American military basically oversee a rerunning of the election. That's uh, just such a, a nutty idea, and uh, yet unsurprising, I suppose, uh, because it's of a piece of everything that uh, we've seen of this president. Remind me a little bit of that scene in, um, you know, that uh, in the book Catch Twenty Two, where the general says, "Take this guy out and shoot him," and his assistant says, uh, "Excuse me, general, you actually can't do that." And the general's like, "I can't." No, no, you actually can't. And apparently there were some uh, sober voices in the room. There were, um, again, these are these sober voices. We should put, you know, quotation marks around the notion of sober. I mean, these are people who have been enablers of Trump for uh, months and even years. And yet still they were 
pushing back against uh, Flynn's kind of wild suggestion about uh, declaring martial law, telling the president actually there's no constitutional basis for him to do so. All right, so let's actually hear what that sounds like a little bit coming from the horse's, not the horse's mouth, um, specifically from former Trump national security advisor uh, Michael Flynn. Uh, he's on the Greg Kelly show on Newsmax's Greg Kelly Reports. I confess, I don't know what that is, uh, but he is talking about the um, the options available to the president. The president has to plan for every eventuality because we cannot allow this election and the integrity of our election to go the way it is. I mean, this is just totally unsatisfactory. There's no way in the world that we are going to be able to move forward as a nation with this. So the president has a, a, and I just mentioned one of the options. I mean, he could immediately on his order seize every single one of these machines around the country on his order. He could also order within the swing states, if he wanted to, he could take military capabilities and he could place them in those states and basically rerun an election in each of those states. I mean, it's not unprecedented. I mean, these people out there talking about martial law, it's like it's something that we've never done. We've done, the martial law has been instituted 64, 64 times, Greg. But not for the purpose of redoing an election. So that, that was the interview that got him another invite uh, into the circle to, to have that conversation. Um, you know, uh, Lawrence Douglas, I don't remember every jot and tittle of the conversation we had back in June, but I know we did talk about, well, would the military get involved? Which way would the military get involved? Would they get involved to stop something like that? Or would they get involved to, to suborn it in some way or to cooperate with it? I mean, how, as you read the waters now, how does that look? Yeah, I, I, I don't see that there's any danger whatsoever of the military uh, intervening right now to try to overturn the results of the election. Um, I mean, for one thing, um, you know, we can take a little bit of cold comfort in the fact that uh, it's fair to say that the military um, apparatus, the kind of the senior leadership of the, of the military in the United States, uh, probably um, all consider Trump uh, unfit for higher office. And let's also bear in mind, I mean, obviously something that Flynn uh, failed to uh, mention is that the uh, electors have already met in all their respective states. I mean, this took place on uh, December 14th. Um, and uh, so the electoral uh, votes have already been cast. Um, Biden is the president-elect of the United States. Now, it is true that technically uh, Trump remains the commander-in-chief until January 20th. And so, you know, the military would follow orders coming from the, uh, the commander-in-chief, but not military orders which um, uh, dramatically fly in the face of the constitutional um, responsibilities of the president. So, you know, one bullet, so to speak, that we dodged was one of the things that you had wondered about, which was would the president try to substitute a different set of electors for the ones who were supposed to be uh, participating in, in the Electoral College and kind of setting off a bizarro world civics class debate about this. Um, that's not what happened. What happened was a bunch of feckless and hapless lawsuits that didn't really go anywhere and you know some uh, other feints and motions towards uh, other kinds of remedies. But it seems as though to your point about the electors having now been chosen, anything that comes after this, which doesn't 
amount to an orderly transition of power it is a coup, right? I mean, there isn't like a, a, a card he can play that sits anywhere within the Overton window of what we think of as American civic function. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, that's also something we should bear in mind when we think about the suggestion that was issuing from uh, General Flynn. I mean, basically what he was talking about was he was he was advocating a coup. He's basically advocating the military stepping in to overturn the uh, results of a democratically conducted uh, election. And, you know, you point out that, you know, on, on one level, you're absolutely right to say that we've dodged a bullet in the sense that the worst possible scenarios did not thankfully manifest themselves. On the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if we've entirely dodged the damage uh, because obviously the, the uh, president continues to inflict, you know, pretty dramatic damage upon our constitutional democracy in as much as he continues to malign the outcome of what was all said and done, a, a kind of remarkably smooth and fairly uh, conducted election. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue to probably see some of this fallout from his attacks on our election on January 6th. January 6th is the date that uh, Congress uh, convenes in a joint session to basically uh, ratify the votes that the uh, electors in the respective states uh, conducted on December 14th. And we're gonna see some of uh, Trump's uh, supporters try to contest the um, ratification of the Electoral College vote on January 6th. And again, that's that's another kind of very ugly thing for our country to have to experience. Yes, and and not to minimize that at all, Lawrence, but it does appear uh, at least I, I will I defer to you on this, but it seems as though if you see the stuff that McConnell is saying right now, that there wouldn't really be a, any kind of leadership-backed attempt at nullification or a refusal to ratify. That's exactly right. That that is to the extent that uh, you have, uh, you know, I'll I'll even call them kind of some of these rogue Republicans who are willing to challenge uh, the the uh, certification of these electoral college votes on January sixth there's no chance that that's actually going to result in anything other than uh, Biden being uh, our next president. But what it will continue to do is it will continue to uh, erode the faith of tens of millions of Americans in the integrity of our electoral system. And it's really hard to imagine, Colin, that our democracy can uh, function in the years uh, to come if Americans lose that basic faith in our electoral processes. Yeah, and with with your saying that, uh, I'll ask you a question that I asked somebody last week. I'm chagrined to say I can't remember who I asked, but I know I did ask it. So if I were to say to you, uh, Lawrence, that I think that two years from now, there will be a significant secessionist movement uh, in, in this country, maybe even led by the Attorney General of Texas or some of the other kind of people who who attempted to to discredit this, you know, free and fair election and whose lingering dissatisfaction with the results has enabled them to whip up quite a bit of popular support for the idea of, of you know, of pulling away somehow. I'm not saying it would happen, but there would be, you know, a, a movement of note would you try to talk me out of that point of view or would you join me in it? Um, you know, I, I, I guess 
that is not the kind of like oh, the, the little alarms that go off inside my head. Mm-hmm. The successionist movement, which I agree. I mean, you, you've already seen people starting to float this idea. Um, you know, that's not really the, uh, the, the danger that keeps me up at night. I'm much more concerned that, uh, that basically you have, you know, all these Republican lawmakers who have signed on to a anti-democratic agenda. Mm-hmm. to an agenda that basically um, uh, stands for the proposition that we recognize electoral outcomes when we win and we uh, emphatically reject them when we lose. And I, I really just worry that in the years to come that that script will be repeated and improved upon by whoever uh, comes in the wake of uh, Donald Trump, be that uh, could be even Donald Trump himself. Um, and that, that's what I really do worry about, that we will, as a nation, lose faith in our democratic processes, which makes it us all the more vulnerable to the kind of autocratic um, uh, acts that uh, Trump really has tried to um, engage in in the wake of uh, this November's election. So last question, and it is similar to a question I asked you back in June. I, I want you to um, tell me your most probable scenario for January 20th. Are we talking about the president books it out of here two or three days early and moves to a country with no extradition uh, to the U.S.? Are we talking about he goes to the inauguration and frowns all the way through it? Uh, he refuses to vacate the White House uh, on that particular day at the particular scheduled time? I mean, what what does inauguration day look like to you? Well, I think it's fair to say that he's not going to flee the country. He's not going to kind of take up residence, you know, in some kind of swank penthouse uh, with a view onto the Kremlin. I think that's fair to say. I think it's also pretty fair bet to say that he will boycott the inauguration. He's not going to be there. In fact, I could easily imagine him staging some kind of uh, um, parallel event meant simply to draw attention away from uh, Biden and actually simply to underscore to his tens of millions of supporters that Biden is an illegitimate president. Um, I could also imagine him tarrying uh, when it comes to leaving the White House. That is not leaving, you know, I do think that ultimately he will leave the White House, but I could see him just kind of provocatively hanging around so that he's not out on January 20th, but makes up some kind of excuse as to why he's not leaving until the 21st and the 22nd. And and that basically all goes uh, to the way of him demonstrating to his uh supporters that I have chosen to leave the White House, meaning that I might have chosen otherwise, as opposed to I am submitting to a, uh, a necessary reality of my defeat. You know what reform, I had Jack Goldsmith on here a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about various things that should change. The one that we didn't come up with, but I think, you know, we need the law. From the In the future, presidents should have to pay security deposits uh, for the White House. And if they don't get their crap out of there by by inauguration day, they should lose their security deposit. And that would really motivate Trump, too. It's the thing that really bothers him. Yeah, I I wish it would, uh, Colin, except I do think that, you know what, he's raised about $250 million since the election. And uh, so I think you'd probably have adequate funds to dip into in order to pay whatever kind of uh, fine he would have to or whatever kind of security deposit he might forfeit by uh, 
by lingering in the White House. Well, but but owes, I like the idea. He, yeah, he owes $420 million, so we don't right. know that he has enough money. All right, we have to stop there. It's always a great fun. To, well, I don't know. Fun is probably the wrong word when we're talking about democracy hanging in the balance and trying to figure out what episode of 24 we're actually in. But it is always very enlightening to talk to Lawrence Douglas, James J. Gross, Grossfeld, professor of law and jurisprudence at, and social thought at Amherst College. His book in May was published, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. Uh, thanks for being with us again. My pleasure to be, again, uh, to be with you again, Colin. All right. So we're going to take a break. I promised you we would end with something less traumatic. Unless, in fact, salad dressing is such a pivotal area of your life that you'll find this more traumatic. And if that's so, that's on you, all right? I'm not going to feel bad about that. Feet, All right. So uh, it's time to thank the people who are the keys to this show. I am just merely a cog in their machine. I have to sort of see if I can guess what kind of salad dressing they use. I'm going to see the cat pastor who kind of runs everything there at the studio and make sure the show actually happens. I'm thinking ranch. I think I feel like she might be a ranch. And then Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of this show, she probably makes her own salad dressing and it's probably like, whoops, I was wrong about ranch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she probably makes her own salad dressing, Betsy Kaplan, and it doesn't have anything evil in it or anything like that. It's probably like, you know, almost no olive oil and then some kind of very puritanical form of vinegar. That would be my theory. Uh, all right. So but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk to uh, Michael Levinson, who reports for The New York Times Express Dust. He wrote a piece this weekend. Uh, about the FDA. It turns out that the FDA does two things. They approve vaccines for COVID-19 and they regulate salad dressing. That's about it. Those are That's their entire uh, portfolio, uh, and uh, which is not true. But uh, first of all, uh, Michael Levinson, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And and in fact, the um, the FDA has, uh, they are perched on the edge of a landmark move as regards French dressing. Uh, explain this to us. Right. Uh, well, first of all, it's news to me uh, that the FDA even regulates French dressing, but they do. Since 1950, they've uh, mandated certain ingredients be included in French dressing and hundreds of other foods. Um, but lo and behold, they are now about to get rid of those regulations at the request of an industry group called the Association for Dressings and Sauces. So they're freeing up industry to make whatever kind of uh, French dressing they'd like. This feels like, Michael, something that some uh, K Street lobbying firm got paid a lot of money for, right? There's, there's somebody in the industry said, take off the shackles, let us make uh, whatever we want to call French dressing, French dressing. Is, is it that kind of thing? I think it is exactly that kind of thing. This is one of those regulations that's been on the books for years, decades in this case, and it really doesn't um, gain a lot of public attention, but for a certain part of the salad dressing uh, industry. It's a big deal. Um, You have to now include 35% vegetable oil in your French dressing recipe, according to federal regulations. And that's a problem for, you know, big companies that want to make salad dressing with less oil uh, or make other formulations, you know, low fat, light, fat free. Um, I also talked to one critic who said this is just a way for the industry to stick more junk into the recipe. Right. Well, I mean, that's an interesting point. Uh, and, and it 
it initially, when you sort of see their reasoning, it almost seems somewhat Socratic in nature. I mean, essentially what they say is these regulations are not really necessary to establish what French dressing is, that uh, this will not result in French dressing being put out that's made of all kinds of very counterintuitive ingredients that uh, won't result in French dressings that do not in any way correspond to our platonic notion of what a French dressing is. Um, but I don't know. That seems also like it might be BS. Uh, yeah, um, the FDA said that the public basically expects French dressing to have a red or reddish color to be sweet. And uh, that's kind of it. Um, you know, you see it on the store shelves, you might toss it in your cart if you like that kind of dressing. Um, but, you know, the point of these standards is to ensure that you're getting some minimum basic quality in your foods. And, you know, when you take that off, it does open the door for all sorts of other ingredients to go in there. At least now, you know, you're going to get the three basic rules, according to the federal government now, are that you need vegetable oil and then some kind of acid like vinegar, lemon, or lime juice. So you, at least you know you're getting that in your bottle. Once these guardrails come off, you know, French dressing could include potentially anything else that the industry would like to put in there. Um, mm. We'll see, you know, what, what happens with uh, French dressing uh, over the next couple of years once the, once the rules come off. But it doesn't seem like, um, well, we'll uh, just leave it at that. Well, not to see a pattern where none is there, but there was also a notification, uh, I think, uh, within the same time frame about ditching frozen cherry pie regulations. And they made essentially the same argument. They said, you know, everybody knows what a cherry pie is to a sufficient degree that the FDA doesn't have to say what a cherry pie is. It, it, uh, is this also kind of the last gasp of Trump era deregulation? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. This is part of a big, This is these are sort of two small little areas of a larger project of trying to deregulate um, all across the government. Whether, you know, there's some huge areas of environmental regulations that have been loosened and um, all sorts of other uh, standards. Um, and here, obviously, industry, two little corners of industry have an interest in frozen cherry pies and French dressing, and they're getting in their um, wish list uh, from the FDA right before the Trump administration exits. It seems like such an odd thing, too. It seems like such a niche thing. I mean, I think you point out in your article, French dressing is no longer really, you know, anywhere near the top of the batting order uh, of dressings. And, uh, you know, even if Cat Pastor doesn't like ranch dressing, we live in a ranch dressing world these days. I mean, it just seems a little peculiar that there'd be this carve out specifically about French dressing. Uh, it is, are there any theories about, like, why that would have happened? Um, yeah, a French dressing, I think, was at the time in 1950 that it was put on the books with these regulations, sort of a more popular dressing. And mm -hmm. since then, ranch has become the undisputed heavyweight champion of salad dressings. Forty percent of Americans say it's their favorite. The next closest is Italian dressing at 10 percent. So the people that make French dressing have complained that there's no regulations for ranch dressing. There's nothing for Italian. So why are we subjected to these onerous, burdensome rules of how we have to make French dressing? They feel like they're being unfairly singled out and they want uh, some parity with the other kind of salad dressings. <laughs> they want the freedom to bottle anything and say, this is French dressing, the way they're interested. Yeah. I, freedom I dressing. Say, yeah. Right. Freedom dressing. Exactly. That's as, as Sean Hannity uh, has on his salads. So, um... 
you know, I guess the other thing that uh, struck me, well, there was a person that you quoted, um, uh, I think it was a nutritionist or a nutrition scientist. And at the end of the article, she said something like, well, people just could make their own dressings, but don't get me started on that. And it, it kind of did get me started on that. But the first thing that I did is I looked at dressings and I realized, I mean, some of them are like, they're unhealthy. They're, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of, particularly anything that's called like ranch buttermilk or buttermilk ranch dressing, it's not uncommon for the, for two tablespoons of it to contain 180 calories. <laughs> um, that there really is, I mean, if people are using bottled salad dressing, and I know that's not necessarily this huge area of expertise that you've spent years cultivating, that this is kind of a, a new topic for you, you know, it, there is sort of a caveat mTOR thing, right? You should probably actually, instead of just accepting the FDA's assurances that you're not going to get some weird stuff in, in your bottled, bottled salad dressing, you should probably actually be on the uh, on the lookout for what's in it. Yeah, I mean, this is the other complaint that the nutritionist I spoke to said and the public health professor I spoke to said is that um, these dressings are already stuffed with all sorts of chemicals and crazy ingredients that you might not recognize, you know, if you saw them. And she said, you know, why not just toss some oil and vinegar together? It's, you know, it's probably cheaper. It might be tastier and it's certainly more helpful. Um, you know, <laughs> I think there's a point there. Uh, but there are people that really love ranch dressing, especially has just gone through the roof. You know, people dip anything in ranch dressing these days. And I think French dressing has its own little following as well. It's one of these like sweet foods that people just love to, you know, put anything into. And uh, so you know, whether Americans will start making their own homemade vinaigrettes, I don't know, but it, it is the plea from the public health perspective. It's certainly, I pulled up a site right away. I mean, I basically do make my own kind of salad dressing, but I thought, I bet you I could make a pretty good salad dressing too that wouldn't be 180 calories. So uh, tonight I will be making uh, maybe a slightly more ambitious and elaborate, uh, I mean, Betsy Kaplan turns out puts uh, balsamic vinegar and oil in her salads. That's what I put on too. But what, so uh, after everything that you've learned about this, if you had a salad in the next two or three days, what would you put on it? Uh, I am in that camp that I make my own. I put olive oil, vinegar, a little mustard, salt and pepper together, and uh, I think it's quite good, um, and it's pretty fast. It so that's what I do, but uh, I have learned a lot about salad dressing in the course of reporting the story. I know we have other reporters that are covering the FDA's approval of you know coronavirus vaccines and hugely world historical developments, so it was interesting for me to, to burrow in and, and learn a lot about salad dressing regulation. It actually, I think, provided a welcome relief for uh, a lot of us. And so uh, I, I do want to say, but yeah, and I just, one final observation about this. I think one thing that people think is that if you're putting a thing on something that's healthy, like salad, so you've got a bunch of mixed, you know, field greens and some sliced up carrots and some other stuff that if you put something on it, that's healthy too. But, but that's not really the case. If you put like unhealthy stuff on your healthy stuff, uh, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. Michael Levinson, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. Michael Levinson reports uh, for the New York Times uh, Express desk. So let me just, I've got a minute or two here, I think. Yeah, I think I have one or two minutes here. So let me just tell you uh, what the plan is uh, for the next couple of days. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to be recording for a future broadcast, a show that we do every year on the best jazz recordings. We always do it with the same three uh, mavens. They're more than mavens, but so Gene Seymour, uh, uh, Jen Allen, and uh, of course Noah Behrman, uh, and I've looked at the list that they've they've come up with. We'll, we'll be playing a lot of that music for you. 
uh, I think it's going to run between the holidays, but um, it's really great this year. It's in fact the kind of nourishing uh, and enriching uh, music that that you do want to hear. So we're excited about that. Uh, on Wednesday, I, I had to reschedule the nose from last Friday. So on Wednesday, we're going to do the nose right before the holidays. Uh, we are going uh, to talk maybe. Definitely about Tenet, uh, and we're discussing whether we should add Ma Rainey's Black Bottom to that. Uh, we'll also be doing The Wheelhouse on Wednesday. It's going to be a busy busy three days or, or so, but we've got uh, a lot of stuff that we want to get done for you before the holidays and stuff that we can run between the holidays. So, um, And also, we I also wanted to say that we had a really nice fun drive last week, and a lot of you called up and pledged during our show and said nice things about the show and stuff like that, and uh, I am forever grateful. Uh, and it, it really meant a lot to get that kind of help. So thanks for doing that. So, yeah, stay with us this week. Uh, we'll, we'll have I don't know what's actually on the air tomorrow, but um, something <laughs> something will be airing while I'm recording this uh, jazz show. Uh, it's going to be oh, it's the Kurt Anderson interview. Actually, that will really uh, button on pretty nicely uh, to the conversations we had with uh, Lawrence Douglas uh, just now. So um, get ready. Get ready for an interesting week. Thanks for listening today. I hope we didn't scare you too much. Uh, and make your own salad dressing tonight. Don't get that stuff out of the bottom, out of the bottle. Also, I have another question. Why is there suddenly white balsamic vinegar? Like, why would there be white balsamic vinegar? Who, who decided we needed white balsamic vinegar? Vinegar. It doesn't even seem right or possible. All right, that's all. The salad or the sauce on the side. I don't know if you mind. I don't care, you can put it anywhere.